In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manassa, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And especially today, it's very important to bear witness to your Catholic faith in the public sphere, in the political sector. We need to bear witness, especially in these times. It's important for Catholics to rise up, especially those um, in public office, who hold public office, who need to take action with their faith. And this week I've brought in the Honourable, um, the Right Honourable Anne Widdicombe from the United Kingdom. Welcome to the Catholic Toolbox, Anne. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for being with me. I've been a fan of your work over the years and your, your strong defence of the Catholic faith in the public sphere. Uh, it's, it's, it's been something I've admired very much. Uh, uh, your presence in public debates and documentaries. Uh, it's something I've looked at and I've really admired over the years. So thank you for your defense of the Catholic faith. Thank you. I just wanted to, um, for those who don't know you, um, can you please start off by introducing yourself? Uh, who is Anne Widdicombe and uh, a bit about yourself and your, your great uh, vast uh, history in the public sphere? Uh, well, I was a politician for many years. Um, I was a member uh, of uh, Parliament for 23 years between 1987 and 2010. And then I retired, or at any rate, I thought I'd retired. Uh, but I then uh, came back during all the upheaval over the referendum about leaving the EU. And I came back for a different party, in fact, for the Brexit party. And I then represented that party in the European Parliament for seven months until Britain actually left, at which point we had to leave the Parliament. Uh, so that's a very brief history of my political career. During my time in Westminster, I was a government minister for nearly seven years. I was in the Shadow Cabinet for three years. I was Shadow Home Secretary uh, and Shadow Health Secretary. Uh, so I had quite a varied portfolio of jobs uh, while I was there. Uh, but one of the issues that I uh, was most vocal about uh, was the um, issue of uh, abortion. Um, and during my time uh, in Parliament, uh, while I was still a backbencher, 
uh, and therefore free to um, get involved in private members' bills, as we call them, that is, bills not brought forward by the government. Um, I uh, joined in several attempts to reduce the number of weeks at which, at which abortions can be carried out. Yep. Um, unfortunately, uh, such was the composition of the House, Houses of Parliament um, that uh, instead of managing to get a reduction, we got for the very first time in our country uh, abortion at birth in certain circumstances, not yep. uh, So um, that was my history of that. Now, um, during that time, uh, I was not a Catholic. Uh, I was born an Anglican. I was raised in the Anglican faith. Um, it wasn't just lip service Anglican. My um, uncle was a vicar, my brother was a vicar, my little nephew is a vicar, uh, and uh, I sometimes think the Whittacombs breed in order to keep the Church of England in vicars. So I had very deep, very, very deep Church of England roots. It wasn't as if you know, it was just superficial. But I became, over many years, increasingly disillusioned with the Church of England. It was always sacrificing faith to fashion and Read to compromise, never really seemed to know what it believed in at all. Um, so I was already very, very disillusioned with it. And then it decided that it was going to ordain women as priests and that they were part of the apostolic succession. And theologically, that was the last straw for me. There was already a very large bundle of straw, uh, but uh, that was the last straw. So um, I left the Church of England, but it was another four months before I decided to join the Catholic Church. I didn't know what I was going to do when I left the Church of England, but straightforwardly it no longer uh, had um, what, I, what I wanted from a, from a church and it wasn't exhibiting any leadership. And so four months later I did decide, uh, after some discussions with a Catholic priest about doctrine, uh, I did decide that I would, uh, would become a Catholic. So that was in uh, 1993 I became a Catholic at which time I was the pensions minister uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, and so it got a tremendous amount of publicity. Now, I don't think today it, it would get a paragraph, but back in 1990s, England was still interested in religion. You know, it was, it was interested yep. in what is this sudden upheaval which has shaken the Church of England. And most people had no idea what the apostolic succession was, but they were interested in um, what this was all about. Um, as I said, I don't think today uh, any, anybody would be interested at all. Uh, the Church of England's ever more sidelined. So that is a very brief history of my politics and my religious journey. And I uh, just wanted to ask out of curiosity, what, uh, at what point did you realise that the Catholic faith was the true faith uh, in your theological study with that Catholic priest? I uh, took, took a while. Um, I was never, um, uh, I was never enamoured of the Marian doctrines. Um, I actually didn't take too much convincing on papal infallibility. That was never such a big one for me. Transubstantiation was quite big, but the single biggest of all, uh, the one that still remained after everything else had been resolved, uh, was purgatory, um, which I could not accept. Um, and uh, so that was the hold-up, and I think purgatory remained the only outstanding issue for, for weeks. 
Um, and the priest didn't actually solve it. Um, a very wise man um, called Cardinal Hume, who'd been the uh, abbot yeah. of Ampleforth, um, Cardinal Hume, who was then the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, um, it was he, he who sorted that final one out. Because, of course, it's important for this reason. You can be a cradle Catholic. You can develop doubts about half the canon. Uh, and it doesn't matter. But if you're being received into the Catholic Church, you actually have to say, individually and aloud at the point of reception, I believe all the church teaches to be revealed truth. Now, unless you're prepared to commit a pretty major act of perjury when you're being received into the church, that means you have got to accept all the doctrines. You really do. Um, and it does matter. Uh, and I never really understood, I mean, several years um, after I made that journey, uh, Tony Blair also, who was the British Prime Minister, yep. um, after he left Number 10, uh, he joined the Catholic Church. But uh, he had very strong views in favour of abortion, and I was never wholly convinced that he'd, um, he'd accepted the error of his ways. It's um, and and what is currently happening in the Anglican Church? I I know Pope Benedict the Sixteenth <laughs> very wisely, and I think it was one of the greatest moves that he established the Anglican Ordinaria. And I I'm an actual regular attendee of that liturgy, and I think that did a lot of justice to many Anglicans who felt that they no longer believed in the doctrines of the Anglican Church. And, and, and an easy way to keep their tradition and become Catholic. But what do you think is the underlying problem at the moment with the Anglican ecclesial community? Um, I too am a huge fan of the ordinary. I think it was a brilliant idea. The fact is that the Anglican liturgy is uh, in language um, much more majestic and much more awe-inspiring. Uh, than the words of the Catholic Mass, which bluntly, if you strip them from their meaning, are a bit banal. Um, as is, as is all the new liturgy in the Church of England. Um, the old liturgy uh, was only being practiced by a minority of Anglicans, um, and at the time that the ordinary was uh, was set up. But I think also Pope Benedict had learnt the lessons of the past. Um, when the Church of England took the decision to ordain women priests, um, and that was in 1991. When it took that decision, nobody was expecting it. Everybody thought it'll be another five years before the Synod decrees this. Uh, nobody was expecting it to happen. The Anglican Church wasn't prepared for the mass departure that then followed. The Catholic Church wasn't prepared when it comes to what do you do with several hundred Anglican priests who now want to become Catholic priests. Um, you know, what do you do with them? You can hardly send them right back to train from scratch. Uh, so there, there was total confusion. I mean, real confusion. And uh, I think Benedict learned from that and he saw that there would be other big issues in the Anglican Church. Women bishops was an obvious one, um, but also um, gay marriage was looming on the horizon. Uh, and I think he uh, he took the view this was going to happen again and next time it wasn't going to be a mess uh, and it wasn't. I mean, if you really do think about it, I mean, a trait of the one true church should be the fact that there is unchanging teaching that cannot be simply revoked by a vote. What do you think yeah. of the voting system in, uh, in the Lambeth conferences? Well, 
I mean, Christ did not put the Sermon on the Mount to the vote. You know, Moses did not put the Ten Commandments to the vote. Um, divine teaching is a divine teaching. And um, I, you know, I, I, I don't agree uh, with simply um, trying to democratize the church to the point that everybody has a, a, a vote um, about matters of doctrine. Now, the Catholic Church very wisely has a division between doctrine and rules. I mean, I can remember Catholicism because uh, I went to a, a convent school uh, in the days when you absolutely had to cover your head when you went into church. Um, yeah. And it was considered utterly unacceptable to do anything else. Well, that was a rule. That wasn't a statement of faith. That was a rule. And rules can be changed, but essential yeah. doctrines can't. And the Catholic Church, I mean, one of the reasons why I did want to join the Catholic Church um, and hope that I would be able to resolve the doctrinal issues was that um, teaching doesn't change. You know, what was good 2,000 years ago is good now. And indeed, the only serious piece of teaching, which I think can remember uh, being jettisoned, uh, was when Benedict got rid of limbo within about five minutes of coming home. Um, nobody else would have got away with that. Absolutely nobody else, because it would have been seen as a, as a liberalizing measure. But in fact, it was, um, he was the keeper of the doctrine, and he'd obviously examined it in deep detail uh, and found that somewhere along the line it had deviated. Uh, so, um, I, uh, you're quite right, I mean, teaching does have to be steadfast, otherwise, how can you talk about eternal verities? How can you say what is true? And I think one of the most telling papal encyclicals of, of all time um, was uh, John Paul's encyclical, um, which was called Veritatis Splendor, and it, the shining of truth. And the basic thesis of that encyclical was that um, something can be unpopular, but absolutely true, or it can be massively popular, but nevertheless false. Yep. And you can't determine truth by popularity. And I think that's what the Church of England tries to do. Uh, just another question. Why did you not venture to Eastern Orthodoxy? I always ask this of converts. <laughs> um, while the Eastern Orthodox Church was in, in touch at the time, um, but uh, I was familiar with Catholicism. I had, um, as I just said, I'd been to a Catholic school. Uh, my grandfather, whom I never knew, uh, my grandfather was a Catholic, um, and so uh, it, it was never that strange to me, um, and I was familiar with it, and after all, you know, that is there and on the doorstep. I, I think it would have been a bit esoteric to go looking at the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, so I will be quite honest and admit that I, you know, I, I didn't consider it. Is there a movement of traditionalism in the Anglican ecclesial community? Is, is there a move of traditionalists within that community to return back to the old past who, who don't want to join the Catholic faith? No, the only movement is out, quite honestly, you know. Um, and that, I think, is, has been what the problem is. Um, people at either end of the scale, the Anglo-Catholics and the Evangelicals, who of course believe in sola scriptura and are, and are pretty strict about it and don't mess about, and the, the Anglo-Catholics who accept the Catholic position and don't mess about, um, those two wings um, are completely separate from the vast mess in the middle. 
um, where nobody really knows what anybody thinks. And you know, your view is as good as my view is the is the prevailing attitude. And therefore, traditionalists on the whole are moving out rather than trying to take the church back. What was your reaction when you saw um, uh, sort of a vast liberal influence, even within the Catholic Church, not in the official teaching, but in the sort of culture uh, that you might have noticed? Did you notice anything about maybe perhaps uh, liturgical um, innovations? Uh, did you notice anything about liberal ideas among within leaders in the church? Or did you notice any kind of cultural issues? I mean, the Catholic Church is pretty coherent um, and rests on the magisterium and it, it, it's, you know, it is at least coherent. Now, obviously, you will always get, I mean, you had some Catholic priests saying that they believed in the ordination of women at the time of the mm -hmm. Great Split. Yep. Um, but um, there's no doubt where the Catholic Church stands. You know, I mean, that is the point and the fact that you've got the odd renegade in your midst isn't going to make much difference. But of course, Increasingly, over several decades, the Catholic Church has tended to be associated uh, with the Labour Party because of its social teachings, yeah. uh, which I think is a misunderstanding, but um, that is so. But I already knew that. So it wasn't a shock. It wasn't something that I wasn't expecting to encounter and then encountered it. Um, but I think the crucial thing is, of course, that in the Catholic Church, the laity do not determine doctrine. No, they do not determine doctrine, whereas in the Anglican Church, the laity can vote uh, on that sort of stuff. They can vote on women priests, they can vote on women bishops, they can vote on um, sanctifying gay marriage. They can vote on all those things. Uh, in the Catholic Church, authority is very, very restricted. Excellent. And uh, let's go into when you did come to the Catholic faith, what was the social reaction, especially being in the public sphere at the time? <laughs> it was huge. I mean, it was absolutely enormous. It was. Why was it such a big deal? Well, that's what I say. You know, it wouldn't be now. Uh, but at the time, it was seen as a big deal, um, and at the time, it was seen as a proof of a renaissance of the of the Catholic Church in England, um, if you like, the Catholic Church coming out of the closet uh, and taking much more of a of a part uh, in national affairs. Um, until then, I think. And, and I mean, I will, I will give you an example of a question I was asked by a mainstream BBC interviewer, mainstream. Uh, and the question was, did I feel as if I had joined a religion of um, Irish navvies and Italian waiters? In other words, no, you, they couldn't ask that now under the race laws, but they could then. Um, but uh, in other words, they perceived um, Catholicism as foreign as not quite English. And I actually think Cardinal Hume had an immense impact on that because he was all part of the establishment. You know, he came from a very established British family. Um, he didn't come from Ireland, he didn't come from Italy. Uh, you know, he came from um, a very, very established English family with a big role in public affairs. Uh, and he did it very slowly and very gradually and the, the uh, but gradually he brought Catholicism into the mainstream in our country to such an extent that the Queen uh, actually visited Westminster Cathedral. Now there was massive demonstrations of the extreme Protestants outside, uh, but most people thought this was terrific. 
know, this this was something long overdue. I, I remember seeing the video uh, of her entering Westminster Cathedral, and it was labelled as treason. It, it, it was labelled as treason. <laughs> oh, well, those were the extremists labelling it as treason. Yes. Um. I mean, I remember when when the Pope uh, visited Pope Benedict visited um in Britain, and I was covering it for Sky Television. And as I stood on a balcony looking down at the people who were thronging the pavements uh, when he went into Westminster Abbey, not the cathedral, but Abbey, the, uh, the Anglican church, um, and there were two banners there. Uh, and one banner was being held up by a man who said, who was saying the Pope is the Antichrist. And the other banner, only a few feet further away, and they weren't molesting each other at all, only a few feet further away was another banner saying, we love you, Papa, more than beans on toast. Uh, and I think that summed up um, very much the, uh, the two completely different attitudes at the time. Um, but, you know, even people like, and it may not mean much uh, where you are, but we had a very, very fierce um, Irish member of Parliament called Ian Paisley, uh, who um, was represented Northern, were represented part of Northern Ireland, and was very, very, very anti-Catholic, um, and, and would say that the Pope was the Antichrist. But even by the end, um, he was mellowing as well, because what I think both churches realised, and what I think Christendom as a whole is coming to realise, is that actually the enemy is not each other. We now have a common enemy, a common enemy which is called secularism, and militant atheism. And those are now um, where, we where we have to turn and fight. Um, we should stop fighting each other. And I think by and large we have. I just want to, you mentioned Christendom. What are your views about Christendom in Europe at the moment? Um, can we resurrect it again? Or do you, th do you think it's possible? Well, I would never say anything's impossible, and certainly with God, nothing's impossible. But um, if you ask me to say that I think that by Tuesday afternoon, uh, you know, we can get the Christian influence back into the EU uh, and into the individual European countries, well, it is there big time in some of the former uh, Eastern Bloc European countries, in places like Hungary and Romania, which have had a very strong Catholic tradition, um, a lot of which was driven underground during communism and therefore remained strong. It remains strong. Uh, and they do find some of the EU legislation very difficult. Um, but, I mean, if, if you go to a, a Christian country now, how do you know you're in a Christian country? You know, what is it that marks it out? Now I know when I visit a Muslim country, I know I'm in a Muslim country. Um, but I don't, uh, I'm not sure what marks out a Christian country these days. Excellent. Let's now talk about po Catholic political influence. Now, you did become a Catholic while you were in public office. How, how does somebody who's aspiring for public office or in public office, that's a Catholic, reveal it publicly without being scrutinised these days? Because I know, you know, it, it's funny because our New South Wales Premier here in Australia it was known to be a, a you know a conservative Catholic, and uh, uh, the articles that came out when it was first uh, elected um, by the cabinet uh, was was just extraordinary. I mean, how do you come out as a let's start off by saying how do you come out as a Catholic, 
and not present yourself as some how do you how do you balance the presentation where you you don't get completely scolded but you can somewhat be respected how do you St. Paul said we believe and therefore speak uh, which has always been my light belief I mean if you believe something say it um, and um, I, first of all I don't think anybody was very surprised when I joined the Catholic Church because I had been associated with causes that were in turn associated with the Catholic Church so I think sometimes not necessarily justifiably so but the pro-life cause was one of those now I was a pro-lifer as an Anglican I was a pro-lifer in a brief period of agnosticism I was a pro-lifer when I became a Catholic but I'm not a pro-lifer because I'm a Catholic I'm a pro-lifer uh, and um, uh, so I don't think people were terribly surprised when I became a Catholic but it wasn't regarded um, I mean it was getting newspaper coverage because of the schism in the Church of England uh, it was getting a lot of newspaper coverage um, there were something like five bishops left the C of E and joined the Catholic Church, um, hundreds of clergy, a member of the royal family, several members of parliament. I was the first, but I wasn't the only. Uh, and therefore, I think people just got the drift that, yes, there are Catholics in public life these days. Um, and it was perhaps not as surprising as you might think, because although it was still perceived as impossible for a Catholic to be Prime Minister, and indeed, as I mentioned, Tony Blair waited until he'd finished his term of office before he converted. Um, although it was perceived that you couldn't be a Catholic and Prime Minister, which is no longer the perception, um, there was, there hadn't been you know, for decades any real prohibition on Catholics in public life. There used to be, of course. We needed a Catholic Emancipation Act to get rid of that, but that was a, you know, that was a long time ago. So I think it is not so difficult. Where it becomes challenging is, and this isn't restricted to Catholics, um, we had it with the leader of our Liberal Democratic Party um, in the last election, uh, when he, um, because of his religious beliefs, um, which were not Catholic, um, he uh, opposed gay marriage, uh, and um, the, the uproar was huge. So the problem is not that you are a Catholic or you are a Christian, it's what you then say as a result of that, which causes um, public reaction. And I'm always getting it, uh, but I'm used to it. And I think they're used to me by now. They don't really expect me to say anything else. I never am going to say anything else. Uh, so I think you just, as I say, you know, I take that, that um, Pauline statement very, very seriously. We believe and therefore speak. And in a sense, Christ said much the same thing when he said, well, you don't keep your light under a bushel. Um, and I've been accused of many things by my enemies, but never yet of hiding my light under a bushel. How do we balance, how, how do we not deny our Lord? I think, I think that's the whole mindset of how, um, excuse me, um, how do we, how do we, find the right balance of, of prioritizing our Lord, not gaining the world and losing our soul when you first enter uh, politics. Because there is that temptation once you're in public office to, to cave into the pressures of the world. It could be on the subject of abortion. Uh, right now in the state of New South Wales on euthanasia. Uh, well, euthanasia how do you develop that mindset? Euthanasia, of course, is also very big um, in, in our legislature. Uh, 
there have been a regular attempts, one very recent, <coughs> to introduce assisted dying, doctor assisted dying. Yes. Um, and it, uh, it's always been resisted, um, but each time <coughs> the uh, numbers resisting it get smaller. And I have no doubt that a time may come when it does prevail. But at the moment, the moment, um, we are actually holding it now. Um, and of course, a lot of people join us who are not Christians, you know, who wouldn't cite that as their reason for opposing uh, euthanasia. So um, I think um, you ask a very important point, you know, um, do we deny the Lord? No, we don't. But equally remember that we were told we must be as wise as serpents. And therefore, sometimes you have to think. Um, and this happened in the um, in the passage of the abortion bill uh, when uh, we were. It was clear to us that we did have a majority of MPs, but only if only if we exempted unborn children with handicaps uh, from the protection of the uh, uh, the time limits, and. We were very divided about it. None of us wanted to do it, uh, but there were those who said, this is an issue of principle and we just stand. And, you know, we, we just lose, but we stand. And there were others who said, hang on, and I was one of these, I said, hang on. You know, if you look at the statistics, 92% of all abortions after the 18th week, which was the line we were proposing, uh, all abortions after the 18th week, 92% are not done on grounds of disability and handicap. They're not. So I said, if you had a shipwreck and you knew as you went into the water to help that you could only get off 92 people out of 100, would you just let the ship go down and abandon the 92? Or would you get them off and say, the rest, you know, we will try uh, and address later. And I was for that approach and that was the approach that did finally prevail. But that was, if you like, a, a, a a dispute between absolute adherence to a principle and how do we maximize the saving of unborn life? How do we get what we can get? Uh, do we really want to say we don't want to help those uh, in order to support something we can't get? Uh, and it, it's always difficult. Um, and politics is about the art of compromise. It always has been. Uh, you know, I always point this out. Religion is about absolutes. You know, this is true, that's false, this is good, that's sin. Um, it, it, it's about absolutes. Politics is never about absolutes. Politics is always about the art of compromise and of deciding when a compromise will produce good and when a compromise will take you backwards or produce ill. Um, and that's the decision you have to take. And if you can't make those sorts of decisions, then go into public life. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, people people often, from a faith perspective, look at politicians and say, oh, well, it's not a place to be if I want to save my soul. But re the reality is, I mean, you had examples like King Louis V, who, who Saint King Louis V of France, who actually became a saint, who, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine uh, today if we could change the perception of the fact that you can be in public office and you can become a saint? Yeah. I mean, there is nothing mutually exclusive about public office and uh, a keen service for the Lord. There is nothing mutually exclusive about those two things. Um, it is a question um, of working out how you do it. Uh, and uh, I, I, my 
what I perceive to be the problem now is that Christianity is in full retreat in our country. Um, the established church is not standing up against the forces of secularism uh, and tries too often to appease rather than to oppose. Uh, and uh, that to me is the single biggest worry. I mean, I talk to children who don't know who Pontius Pilate was. Yeah, I mean, good heavens above. You know, my generation was brought up on scripture, whether our parents were believers or not. You know, we had it at school. Uh, and uh, so I just can hardly believe that we've got quite a section of the population. And I'm not talking about religious minorities. I'm talking about ordinary, you know, nominal Christians in that population who do not know uh, who Pontius Pilate was, uh, what happened on Easter Sunday. They don't know. Uh, you know and we've let this situation develop. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's very devastating at the moment. What do you think about, how is our response as a church on, on, on a leadership level at the moment? Uh, do we need to be tougher with, with the state at the moment? Or do, do, we have, do, we have enough, do we have enough influence coming from our leadership? Well, I always think this Pope that we've got at the moment is first-class PR man because people always think he's changed things, he's changed nothing. Um, and when they say, oh, but he's a great liberal reforming Pope, I say, oh, name me, name, name me something he's changed. Well, what's he reversed? Can't change anything, yeah. Uh, nothing, absolutely nothing. So um, he's got all the presentational skills, but he hasn't um, actually sacrificed an iota um, of, of church teaching. And uh, Benedict was the other way round. Benedict actually did sacrifice some church teaching, but because he had such a stern, he was known as God's Rottweiler, for heaven's sake, because he was known that way, um, people just didn't hear him doing that. They only heard him when he was reasserting uh, the church's teaching. So, um, I, I, the leadership obviously varies, but in individual countries it also varies. Um, and uh, uh, that is where I think we need much more visible leadership. I and mean, the Catholic flock in this country want visible leadership. They really do. Will politicians and people in, um, in Parliament listen to the church again? Do you think they will? If we had, let's say, let's say a stronger leadership model within the church uh, where bishops would speak out, would dialogue much more with uh, their local members, um, and ministers making crucial decisions about moral issues. Do you think we can re-engage them or is it, is it much too tough? What does it take to re-engage the, the public sphere? Well, Mrs. Thatcher once famously said, there's no such thing as society. And I'm now going to say to you, there's no such thing as parliament. It is the members within parliament who can make the change, the individual members. And so it isn't, does parliament listen to the church? It is, are there members of parliament who listening to the church will then try to take that message back into parliament and try to let it influence lawmaking um, or law repeal or whatever it might be. Um, and that really is the question. It's up to individual members of parliament. I'm often asked when I'm told that um, you know, Christianity is on the decrease in this country. Well, what can the government do about it? Or what can the church do about it? And I say, hang on. You know, we're talking here about a collection of individuals, and it's really what individuals do about it. I mean, if the early church had had anything like the sense of urgency that we've got today, we would all still be worshipping Zeus. It was 
Christianity grew because the early Christians were very, very serious about what this was for. And St. Paul did his mission with journeys and, you know, and some of the apostles faced horrible deaths. And they were very serious about what they stood for. But they took individual responsibility. I think these days we, we talk about amorphous bodies as a church, parliament, society. But they're all made up by individuals and it's those individual efforts which will determine the outcome. Let's talk about rising to the ladder. Um, here in Australia, we have the pre-selection process where uh, you can be pre-selected for a, within a constituency. Should, uh, often displaying the fact that you are religious or Catholic can sometimes cost you. H how do we find that fine balance in, in trying, if you intend, if you feel that like God's calling you to run for public office? What's the, should we be vocal about our faith straight away? Should we gradually uh, speak about it or should we, should we keep it to the side for a while what, what, to, to then rise to the ladder of, uh, let's say, uh, becoming a member of, of a particular area? Um, well, I go back to what I said to you earlier, um, and which I've said now a couple of times in, in this program. Um, St. Paul said, we believe and therefore speak. You know, that, that, that's the crux of it. It's no good believing and zipping your mouth. Um, but equally, uh, and indeed, when, when I first stood for Parliament, my very first election, I, uh, well, for the seat that I then represented, when I very first stood for that, one of my leaflets was actually called Standing Up for Christian Principles. And then I listed underneath some of the issues, you know, where my Christian point of view, and I was an Anglican at the time, where my Christian point of view uh, would, would come into play. And I distributed that leaflet throughout the constituency and there was no backlash for that. I think times have changed a bit. And that now you probably have to pick your moments. But there is no uh, harm at all, um, and you won't come to any political harm, simply by saying that, you know, you believe in God and you believe in Jesus Christ and, you know, you believe this, that or the other thing. Problems arise when you apply it to particular pieces of legislation. And that's what happened to the leader of the, the Liberal Democrat Party called Tim Farron uh, in this country. He, everybody knew he was a believer. Nobody worried about that until the day came when he stood up against something. Um, and it was politically incorrect to do so. Let's now go into three practical tools. For those who are looking at public office, uh, next year we have our federal election here in Australia. For those who are looking for public office, uh, for those in public office, for those aspiring to possibly run in future, what are three practical tools of how they can best prepare themselves as practicing faithful uh, to, to firstly to serve the people? I mean, politics is about serving the people. I think we need to go back to that, that, that basic principle. It's about serving the, the public. It's not about ourselves, about our own petty little influence that we want or, or our own little prestige. It's about serving the people. How do we go back to that basic principle and bringing the gospel to the decisions that are made and also bearing witness on a public level? How do you become a good, holistic, Catholic politician that can then become a saint? <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, you see, and I, I've used this before, Catholics can be bitterly opposed to each other in terms of policy and politics. Yes, absolutely. 
people say, well, why are you Christians, um, you know, so disputatious? Why, why, why don't you unite? And I say, hang on, it's all part of the divine plan. Because if you are to uh, have Christians in government, then in a democracy, you must have Christians in all the major parties because those parties are going to be in government at some stage. So you need Christians in major parties. And I always use this as a demonstration. Take one very small text from the scripture. Let you who have two coats give unto him that hath none. Now, a socialist uh, will take that to mean that the state confiscates the second coat and redistributes it through taxation. A conservative will take that to mean that it's your individual responsibility that if you see somebody in need, you have to relieve it. You don't just phone up social services because you paid your taxes. Um, they're two completely different approaches, but they're based on exactly the same exhortation, exactly the same exhortation. Now, if that can happen with one tiny verse of scripture, imagine the whole panoply of Christian teaching. You know, we are going to disagree about how we how we should do things. We, we don't disagree on the end. The end is that the man without the coat gets a coat. We don't disagree on the end but we disagree on the means. And that's always going to be the case. Um, and that is why I think sometimes, you know, um, talking about Christians as if they're uh, almost a separate party um, is, is not helpful. We've got to work within the political mechanisms. But you asked me something, you said, you know, what were the most three most practical things that people could do who were aspiring to public life? I think the first thing is pray, and really pray very hard indeed, um, and get everybody else praying. Um, but the second thing is to um, stand up for what you believe, to actually say, if challenged, this is what I believe. Um, and I remember again in 1987 when I was standing for Maidstone for the first time, became my constituency, uh, I actually produced a list of where I stood on all the free vote issues. That's issues where involved <coughs> and the parties don't get involved and individual members make up their minds. So I just listed where I stood on all the free vote issues. And my agent said to me, you've just upset everybody in Maidstone because somebody is bound to disagree with you on at least one and possibly more of those issues, even if they agree with you on others. Yep. And I said, yes, but everybody's entitled to know what their MP believes and where their MP stands. And that's what I'm telling them. And my majority went up, you know, people did not run. And I think sometimes we underestimate the public and we think, you know, we're in terrible danger if we speak our minds. Generally, we're not. And so the second thing I would say is after prayer is make sure that you do indeed stand up for what you believe. And the third thing is, you know, there will be other Christians in the legislature. Get together with them, even if you are politically divided, get together with them um, because uh, that way, um, you, you can go forward um, in greater understanding. I mean, really, I, I was just reflecting for a minute about the fall of Christendom, the, uh, the fall of Constantinople. I mean, it, it really, all the problems of Christendom have stemmed back to division. When a house is, is divided amongst itself, it cannot stand. So, it, I mean, I've witnessed it personally in my political involvement. Uh, when, when Catholics are divided, I think it, it yields tremendous disaster. So how, how can we go about overcoming that? You, we may disagree on different issues. We may have grudges, you know, the political issue, uh, divisions. How do we sort of peel 
peel the differences and compromise on what really matters, which is our faith and bearing witness to Christ in the public arena. How do you actually do that? I think that generally happens when you unite on issues. I mean, one of my best friends in Parliament, um, still is, uh, was a Liberal Democrat MP and I was a Conservative. Um, and he was about as far removed from my way of thinking as was possible. But he was an ardent pro-lifer. And I got to know him through the pro-life movement. Uh, now, we probably disagreed on just about everything else. We really did, you know, and we soon learned not to talk politics too often or, you know, um, sparks tended to fly. But we were united on certain issues and we were also united in our Christianity and in saying that we were Christians and saying why we were doing things. Um, and I think it is generally a good principle. Try and look at what you agree about rather than what you disagree about. You are bound in a <coughs> political context to disagree. You are bound to, and particularly if you come from different parties. But where you're united is in uh, creating a Christian society. What would you say to people? I mean, here in Australia, there seems to be a, a growth in the minor parties where, where pe people get this in with the major parties who are conservative, who have good Christian values and feel that they can't express that in the, in the major parties. But you, you, you alluded to the importance of uh, the Catholics staying in major parties to yield that influence. What would you say to people in, in Parliament or thinking or people aspiring to run who would just consider the, the, the more easier option, okay, well, if I join this minor party, uh, which definitely suits my views, so I could be comfortable. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, sometimes it's, do you think, is it better to stick with the major parties to yield influence? Yes. I mean, I say that unhesitatingly. Uh, it is better to stick with the major parties because if you want to get something done, you're going to get them done through the major parties. You're not going to get something done uh, through a minor party. Now, in the British political system, which is first past the post, um, people will vote for minor parties in by-elections, they'll vote for minor parties in council elections, they'll vote for minor parties when we were a part of the EU in European elections. They will not vote for minor parties when it comes to a general election because they are selecting a government and they are just as aware, not of who they want to be governing, but of whom they don't want to be governing. And if they think there is the smallest chance that by voting for a minor party, they will take a vote away from the major party that they would prefer to be governing over the other major parties, then they won't do it. And I found that, I mean, to get Christianity for a moment, I found that just as a Brexit party MEP. Yeah, half the nation had voted for Brexit, but it wasn't going to vote for a minor party when it came to a general election because it was absolutely terrified um, of Jeremy Corbyn, who was the socialist leader at the time, in a way that it wasn't terrified of people like Tony Blair and Harold Wilson and people like that. So, you know, minor parties are not going to prevail. Uh, and I always advocate, go for a major party. You won't find one that, that you agree with on everything. That's impossible. Find one which most closely represents your views. You mentioned so you did mention socialism. Uh, what's your concern for the United Kingdom in the next five to ten years? You, you've seen, you have a vast perspective on the past and on the current situation. What's your concern um, 
about where the United Kingdom is heading at the moment, and especially with relation to socialism, which seems to be widespread in, in the universities, especially here in Australia, the, the Marxist ideology is being taught and propagated at a vast rate. But what's your concern and how do you see things playing out? I'm less concerned about socialism than I am about what we call identity politics, and I'm sure you probably yeah. have a similar similar phrase out there. Um, this country has always rejected real socialism, uh, even when it desperately wanted to vote it out the Conservatives in 1992, for example, we've been there for three consecutive terms, they desperately wanted us out, but the option at the time was um, a really socialist uh, leader of the opposition. Um, so the country's never been prepared, and wasn't last time with Jeremy Corbyn, to vote for real socialism. Um, it will vote for a Labour government, um, which is moderate and um, soft left, if you like, but it won't vote for anything terribly socialist. So socialism isn't what I fear. What I fear is the growth in the universities particularly, but also in other influential spheres, is the growth of identity politics, of the grievance culture, of the cancel culture, which all add up to the suppression of free speech. And free speech is essential. It's essential for all religions and all uh, political persuasions. Free speech is essential. And if you haven't got free speech, uh, then um, it, it's like cutting off a part of yourself because you, you can't be who you are and who you believe God wants you to be. So free speech and identity politics are what I would um, pick out as being the biggest threats to Britain. I don't think only to Britain, but you know, I'm only concerned with what happens here um, in practical terms, even if in theoretical terms, I obviously worry elsewhere as well. What's your message to women, especially Catholic women who want to get into the public sphere and, and how they can yield Go much influence? Go for it. Go for it. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's, that's my message to anybody, um, male or female, Catholic or non-Catholic. You know, if you what if you feel called a public service, go for it. Don't sit down agonising about whether you should do it. You do need to balance it out very, very carefully with family commitments. Uh, um, it varies from legislature to legislature, but certainly in Westminster, um, it is pretty difficult if you've got a young family. Exactly. Let's now talk about what are, what are you doing uh, with your work uh, these days being out of Parliament and uh, how... I'm retired. I'm retired. I write a column every week for a um, paper called the Daily Express yeah. uh, and I write for that uh, each week. Very good uh, page, uh, usually page 13, every Wednesday. Yes, so the um, Daily Express every single Wednesday on page 13. So people can keep up to date with you there. Yeah, generally page 13, but, but sometimes 15 or sometimes 11, uh, but round about then. So um, I write the Daily Express uh, each week. I do an awful lot of, of commentary on political programmes, obviously. But as I keep reminding people, I am retired. I know I came out of retirement quite the Brexit, but, you know, I am retired. And uh, there is such a thing as the relaxing life. I live in a beautiful part of the country. I live on Dartmoor. Uh, and nothing competes with a walk on Dartmoor on a nice crisp day. That's absolutely amazing. I mean, that's, I, I really admire your service to public life and your witness to the faith and uh, 
I think it's very much inspired me um, in many ways over the years. I mean, watching your defence of the faith and many other people as well. Uh, what's your final word to those people as, as an empowerment to go out? Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts or, or ideas or to, to I, I push say, us right into the world? I would say be wise, but don't be afraid. Uh, don't be afraid. If you find that you're not saying what you think because, and I quote, you can't say that these days, um, then really you probably should be asking whether you should go into public life. If equally, uh, you, you know, you want to rant and rave and, and, and accept no compromises at all, you're probably not suited to public life. But if you can combine wisdom uh, with honesty of belief, that is what your constituents will want. They don't expect to agree with you on everything. Um, I had very large majorities throughout my time in Parliament, um, and I'm quite certain my constituents disagreed with quite a lot of what I stood for. But they do respect honesty and knowing what somebody stands for, and they want, there's a phrase obviously is, you know, they want what they see to be what they'll get. Now, as Christians, we can do that. And uh, in yeah. the election, yeah. yeah. Sorry, in the election uh, here in Australia, we had uh, Tony Abbott at the time. Um, many people disagree with his view, but because he stood for, because it was very attractive that he stood his ground about what he believed. I think yeah. it, it, it's true to a vast extent that if you hold to what you believe, even though people disagree with you, there is a vast attractiveness about that, and people believe that you're a, a man or woman of principle. And they'll believe you're the real thing. You know, I mean, most of the time, people will say to me, they don't know what politicians think, uh, politicians say what they think we want to hear, both of which are quite true. Um, and I think therefore there is a sense almost of relief when they get somebody who says, look, this is what I think. And Whitakam, thank you very much for being with me here on the Catholic Toolbox. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, to the right honorary uh, Ed Whitakam for being with us here on the Catholic Toolbox. Uh, if you want to check out our podcast, go to thecatholictoolboxshow.com. You can subscribe there or wherever you get your podcast platform. And don't forget to tune in next week here, Tuesday nights, 8 to 9 p.m. on the Catholic Toolbox and Western Charity Australia. So until next week, God bless, take care, and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Mm -hmm.